Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. Please note that this talk deals with the process of death and dying in rather explicit detail. If you or someone close to you recently experienced the death of someone close and the area is still painful and raw, this content may evoke unaddressed pain. Our intention is to inform and empower our audience, but this material is not a substitute for therapy. Please use your discretion with regard to accessing this or other material on the site that may be triggering or traumatic for you. And remember that the best strategy is to seek professional assistance for unresolved pain and or any traumatic life experiences you have undergone. In this episode of the show, we speak to Stephen Wertheim about the process of dying and the after-death experience from a social worker perspective. Steve Wertheim, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about the process of dying and the after-death experience uh, from a social worker perspective. Thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. Hey, Oliver, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a delight, you know, it's a delight to talk about this topic. Um, very close to my heart. Okay, I'm I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, we, we've had a few practitioners so far, you know, on the whole topic of death and bereavement and grief. Um, it's not, it's definitely not one of your your topics that you seem to talk about around the bri, though. So and so when you say delight, I mean, I, I'm I'm so so glad to you know to unpack it with you because I think it's such a necessary conversation. It's almost like you know the saying, you know, there's two certainties in life: the death and taxes. And yet, although it's such a certainty, most people kind of shy away from from the topic. Can you tell us in your words? I mean, what what do you mean by the, you know, the process of dying and after death experience? Um, you know, um, people shy away because they're anxious. They don't know what to expect. They. Um, one tends to avoid death um, probably more than you try to avoid taxes. Um, but what is involved in death is a, and each death is very, very individual. You know, it could come by accident, it could come by crime, it could come by old age or injury. Um, but there's a very specific process that happens. Um, and it's very obvious in deaths that are protracted and uh, happen over a period of time. And if one is um, familiar with the process, then can help to alleviate a lot of the anxiety that you feel about the, um, about the whole area. It also, um, you know, if you're prepared, you have a way to make your loved one, or if you're planning for your own death also, make yourself as comfortable as possible and have, um, I think it's very important to have a happy death if it's, if it's possible. Um, and um, it's got to do with the process before dying, you know, during dying, after dying. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm so, I mean, you mentioned a good term there, happy death. I was actually just writing it down. I think the other term I come across a lot, I mean, uh, this is more on a personal perspective, uh, is people talk about a good death. And normally a good death, I mean, for us, you know, from a family point of view, maybe culturally, is like a death in your sleep. You know, it's not like accidental it's not like unexpected it's a death you know you've lived a good life well you've lived a long long life and you just kind of die in your sleep um and that's for many people seems to be the common term is that what you mean as well by happy death yes i suppose a good death um so uh, death can be death can be happy eh? it can be immensely it can be an immensely uh beautiful um, psychological and spiritual experience as well i don't want to be too flowery so uh, maybe let's just stick to the term a good death um 
And the truth is most people do pass in their sleep, eh? Um, as the body winds down, it, it increasingly goes into a state of relaxation and what appears to be unconsciousness, but um, may not be unconscious. Um, but we can speak about we can speak a bit more about that as we go along. Mm. Mm. Okay, so I mean, I think we we set the stage and you know we kind of understand you know what that is and maybe take us through the the process of dying as you see it and you know like as leading up to that stage of like you know good death maybe you said there's a there's a series of steps or stages you know like series of things that happen that you've seen you know whether people know it or not mm -hmm. um for you know just for clarity and for um being able to speak about it in a in a simple way let's consider somebody that's had and a long illness or that's come to the end of their life because of old age or something like that. Um, it is, let's start from a baseline, maybe where somebody has been sick for a while, okay? Um, what they would normally think of in medical terms is there's a period of transitioning, which may last um, anything from a few days to a few weeks, two weeks, sometimes a bit longer, three weeks. Um, and uh, what we find in this time is that the person's uh, behavior changes. So from the baseline of just being ill and all that kind of thing, um, the person may start sleeping a lot more. Um, and the person may eat less or may stop wanting to take in food altogether. And this can panic the family because, um, you know, they, they think it may limit life and they think their poor um, loved one is lying, they're all hungry and so on. Um, the person may be confused or may appear confused, okay? may see signs of delirium or hallucination. Um, there may be an increase in pain. So, um, you know, these are all things that are important to know because um, these are things that we can manage with the help of a good doctor. Um, there are real, very minimal ways of um, intervening to make the person very comfortable. There could be changes in breathing. Um, so the breath rate can drop uh, from its um, baseline again to like maybe something like six breaths per minute. And this can go on for days. Um, And the saturation levels of uh, oxygen and heartbeat, uh, you know, the sats maybe become lower. Um, there are also things we call terminal secretions. The, the body relaxes and it doesn't, um, so liquid that builds up is not evacuated as it would, would be, okay. Um, so the person may start, um, what do they call it? Um, there's a word, um, a rattling a little bit. Um, and it's, 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 not, it's not uncomfortable for the person, but it seems to be, um, it seems to be very um, alarming to the family. Uh, at times, no. And sometimes you have doctors that won't say this is rattling. They'd say, "Hmm, it's a sound that you know. There seems to be something that um, that uh, we can hear a sound in the lungs that wasn't there before." And sometimes it's it's good to explain to the, to people just what is happening and to reassure them. 
Mm. Um, so there's this very distinct change from um, from baseline to you know the process of active dying. Um, now that's sort of what happens in the intermediate phase. Then we come to the process of active dying, uh, and this can happen in the period of maybe some hours to three days. Okay, um, can happen. Every death is different, so never know. Uh, blood pressure drops. Okay, um, if you check blood pressure, the blood pressure would be uh, going down. Uh, the person is likely to become more and more unresponsive. Um, their eyes would probably be closed most of the time. They may become incontinent. Um, people may seem unaware um, of what's going on around them. There may be increased um, apneas. Uh, they may seem to stop breathing more. Sometimes people have what they call chain stokes breathing, and that is um, they stop breathing for a while and then they hyperventilate a bit and then they stop breathing again and so on. Um, then uh, the rattling may increase. Um, Some people have what they describe as terminal restlessness. So they just become very restless. And sometimes people will start saying vicious things to the relatives and seem all delirious. It's so important to reassure people that, you know, if you've been married to someone for 60 years and uh, you had a loving marriage, and in the last hours your partner starts abusing you, um, or seems very irritable and so on. Uh, it's important not to take that kind of thing personally. Um, what we also see um, in the um, uh, in the final period is there's a mottling of the skin. So the skin becomes discolored. It's got to do with how blood uh, flows in the body. So sometimes you have a lacy kind of um, uh, appearance on the body. Sometimes you just have lots of purple or stuff like that. Okay, it varies from one person to the next. Um, the extremities may start being colder. Some people have a window of lucidity. Um, so, um, I want to tell you a little story. There's a Hindu lady um, nearby that's like pretty isolated. Okay, she has some family members around and so on. And I visited her one time and I got a little bit of a booty and I took it to her and she was so chuffed. And so when she was in the process of dying, they called me. Um, and she was like very busy dying. There were people like playing around her bed and all kinds of stuff. And then she sat up for a while and she just smiled. <laughs> and it's it was almost like she had a moment of great clarity and saying, right, this process is happening, but everything is okay. Um, and then she carried on dying. So it's... Uh, some people have different kinds of clarity. One woman, uh, this I don't know, I know it's secondhand from her grandchildren. Apparently she was a miserable old lady uh, for most of her life and had made many, many enemies and so on. And she was all wrinkled. And, and then in the last few days before her life, she, you know, awoke from the slumbers and then... Um, Everybody came and she asked forgiveness and all kinds of stuff and gave forgiveness and and apparently her skin because the wrinkles disappeared um, and she just uh, went on with the process of dying uh, beautifully peacefully. Um, so 
that is are there any questions so far no i mean i i just wanted you to speak because i, I wanted to know how you see it and and i think i mean as 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 difficult as as that conversation is i think what you spelled out is is pretty much how how it can be and i think for anyone listening i think it's worth just having it you know at the back of your context because where else and i think that's why i love doing these these episodes on the show and i love meeting people like yourself steve is because it's almost like the things that you didn't really know people you know you had to know you know because no one speaks about it you're not going to speak about it with family because it's kind of taboo you're not going to speak about it around you know dinner you know like it's it just doesn't get spoken but hearing someone like yourself just articulate it just gets the conversation kind of going and you you know the one thing i do remember and and again you know this might be a huge stereotype around the topic is that people always seem to say that say something profound towards the end again this might be just movies as well but people and and so people are always expecting something profound right at the end of someone's life and and like you said now you know with the 16 years of being married i don't know, my my personal view is that you know if you haven't said it in 16 years you know you're probably not going to say it in those last three days you know it's like uh you know and i think the flip side is that maybe maybe many people do wait until that time and do say something profound but um yeah that's just my thoughts on it do you find that that happens like people always say something profound there has to be something in that last moment that people do that's you you gave a really nice story just now about the wrinkles and the lady i mean i think that's a really cool way of of thinking about it as well you know what if people people die in the same way that they live eh? so if there are things that you want to say to your relatives say them now don't wait till the last moments. The last moments may not be how you expect them to be. Um, for many people, the death process is there's a sudden change in respiratory rate and the depth of breathing. And, um, you know, the in-breaths become more shallow, the out-breaths become more deep, and gradually the breathing stops, and that's it. Um, that's it from the medical, physical point of view. Okay, there's a process that carries on afterwards. Um, so um, do with your relatives and your loved ones what you want to do now, every day, every moment. You really, um, you know, there may be no other moment. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I mean, you, you just uh, gave us a precursor to the to the second part, which is the afterlife stuff. Uh, really interested because you're one of the few brave people that could probably talk about this topic. Um, and so, but before I go into that, I, I do want to ask you, how did you start working with um, patients and maybe even from a subject matter point of view? It's not something that people would, you know, inherently one I specialize in. I had a fascinating discussion, um, you know, with another therapist, speech therapist that deals with palliative care and more especially pediatric palliative care, you know, the, the, the helping them towards the end of their life or the whole, you know, understanding of, of, you know, handling those towards the end of their lives. And then, and I thought that was very inspirational and her name is Tania Gaidin, um, out of the Cape Town area. And, the, in South Africa. And, and what she said is that even so pediatric, obviously children, you know, children being four, five years old, 10 years old. And she said, even children, you know, they know what's going to happen. And I thought that was the most profound thing ever, you know, that she said, and it's almost the parents, you know, that, that are there and they more dis distressed and distraught and, you know, all of those things, but they almost like the children seem to have accepted that this is how it's going to be. And they have this inherent view of how you know the rest of their lives are going to kind of play out i thought that was um that was actually amazing um have you have you seen that as well with with children uh because i mean you know when we talk good life as well i think that's where the you know the the contradiction comes in because you think good life long life you've done everything you've checked all the the uh, you know the boxes on your bucket list and and stuff to get and now it's like done you know but a child you know at four years old ten years old I mean they haven't done all of those things they haven't checked many things on that bucket list and for them to have that level of like profoundness about it 
was quite enlightening for me. Um, I've never worked with children, so I I can't speak about children. Um, um, but with adults, there certainly is. Um, very often, there's a premonition, you know, that that I'm going to die. You asked. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, let me take off my glasses. I don't need them. You asked how I got into the topic. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I drowned when I was a kid. Um, when I was um, maybe seven or eight years old, I drowned and I had a near-death experience. And it is something that changes you. You know, it changes you for the rest of your life. I think what happens with a near-death experience is um, your psychospiritual insight gets jump-started and your psychological makeup and the social setup around you doesn't have the capacity to incorporate that. So um, so you often, um, you know, left at a bit of a loss. So uh, I think my, my process of trying to catch up <laughs> with a near-death experience has lost for the rest of my life, and that's probably why I, why I sit here today. Mm. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing as a story, uh, as a topic, and as a story. I mean, um, so can you tell us about that? I mean, uh, I know we didn't touch on the after after death experience, but was there something profound within that experience that kind of changed the course of your life? Um, you know, I don't want to speak about the experience itself because, um, in a way, it's very difficult to put. Um, ineffability into words um, but there are many we'll, we'll describe the generalities of the of the process um, shortly so um, maybe maybe let let me deal with it in a general way rather okay cool mm-hmm. yeah so I think as we move away from like maybe the process of dying <clears throat> uh, as a you know, as something we're discussing is, can you tell me, uh, because I think this is, you know, I would make this one clear as well, is how do you normally help clients around this? I mean, is it more around the supportive kind of structure that clients would normally seek you out? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, clients come in many different ways, you know. Um Sometimes, um, sometimes you have a, a loved one that's on life support, and you don't know what's happening. Sometimes you um, anticipate the process of dying, and you um, would like sort of reassurance, uh, or you want to know how to deal with your, you know, for the rest of your life, and so on. Um, some people, you know, would say, can we um, help facilitate a trial um, of new drugs or something? Other people would say, um, I want to spend happy times with my children. Um, one person had the most unusual experience, um, was involved in, she was in public transport. And there was an accident. Um, the person landed in the top of a tree. They cleared away the accident site, and she stayed in the top of the tree for a few days, drifting in and out of um, of uh, death or consciousness or whatever. And a few days later, some people came gathering wood and um, noticed that there was a person in the top of the tree. Um, and if they hadn't, you know, she probably would have died there and and so on. So um, people come in different in different forms. Sometimes families come because um, a person with illness is being impossible and they don't know whether they should divorce the person or wait for the person to die or something like that. You know, right. 
many, yeah. many different ways. That's actually um, so interesting <laughs> that as a scenario. I mean, I can see that scenario in my head playing out, but it's actually interesting that you mentioned that as a scenario. Um, you know, people like actually wanting to divorce each other towards the end. Oh, yes, it happens. You know, um, the wife sits there getting chemo and the husband says, um, hey, sorry, I met a new girl. Like, can't be around for this. Hectic stuff. Hectic, mm. heartbreaking stuff sometimes. Um, it it was a movie with Anne Hathaway. I can't remember the name now, though, but but essentially she has cancer. And, you know, she, I think Jake Gyllenhaal plays, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the the love interest of the, you know, the lead male character. And he, uh, yeah, and she tells him, you know, please go away because, you know, the last few days and months, you know, are going to be difficult, you know, and I don't want you to be here. And he chooses to stay. And, at, you know, in the movies, obviously, having regrets as to whether he should have stayed or shouldn't have stayed. And uh, I thought that was quite profound as well, you know, like have, talking about that. Um, as, but but also showing how difficult it could be, you know, depending on how the process is, obviously. Um, we can go into the afterlife, uh, you know, discussion now. But the one nagging question I always have around this is, is um, and, you know, on the whole idea of, the process of dying is that um is it i mean in your opinion again again this i mean it differs for everyone but do you find that people and, and human beings have an inherent need to stay you know living as long as they can rather than letting that process of dying just happen do they almost no. like fight to stay on you know rather than you know, like you, you described it, I mean, and, and that's kind of how I would like to see it as well, as we almost like you relax into the process and, you know, you let it happen. But I, I also have this picture of like, you know, people, you know, fighting all the way until the last minute, you know, to extend it as much as they can. I think death is a labor. Death is like the opposite of labor. Um, it's work. Um, I think the body tries to keep going, even though it can't. So I think um, there's always a little bit of a struggle of the body trying to stay alive. And and then at a certain point, there's a surrender and and it happens. Um, So that's the sense I have, okay? I, I don't have a definitive sort of answer for you about that. I'm sure there are people that know more about that than I do. Okay, cool. Fair enough. Um, again, I mean, like with everything, it's more just curiosity and, and stuff like that. Uh, and it might be very, you know, obviously media driven, you know, from movies and stuff like that. Um, but um, it's just like inherently, you know, like the, like most people, you can't kill yourself. Well, sorry, you can kill yourself. But inherently, the, you know, the body wants to stay alive in a way. Um, at some point, though, Steve, I want to come back to this, and you can tell me whenever we we interject into that. But the process of unnatural dying, and I'm thinking, you know, on the lines of suicide, you know, violent crime, you know, accidents and stuff like that. There must be something about that, you know, that's 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 you know, from your experience, you find different. Obviously, you don't getting you're not getting to see the person, you know, in that loss, but but. There must be something around that. But let's go into the afterlife. And when I think of afterlife experience, I mean, I always think shaman, I always think psychedelic kind of stuff. Um, but is is there a process of the afterlife experience? Uh, yes, indeed, there is. Um, let me just say something about the unnatural death um, kind of thing. Um, there's a different model I, you know, I, I've described I've described pretty um, much factually what happens as the process un- unfolds. There's a different model that one can use to look at uh, the process of dying and consider it in terms of the dissolution of the senses and the elements. Okay, so this is um, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, or shall we leave it for later and go on to the? Uh, no, no. I think let's talk about it while it's you know while you mention it, 
because um, I think it's top of mind. Okay, the um, one way of looking at the process of dying is that, and um, you know, what supports our consciousness is this physical, energetic uh, being that um, keeps us alive and keeps us aware and sentient in the world. And at the end of death, at the end of life, um, you have this whole um, energetic or psycho-energetic physical um, concoction fall apart. So what happens then is the elements fall apart, okay? And consciousness increasingly um, is left with less to hold on in the world. Um, so first, the sort of element of earth falls apart and then water and and I can give you detailed descriptions, but I don't know if we need to go into that right now. Um, let me just um, sort of describe it briefly. Um, and then what people say is that when somebody has a sudden death, so instead of the elements dissolving over a period of days, say, for example, you get, say even you don't die, you get knocked on the head with something heavy and you fall into unconsciousness. Basically what the knocking does, it shatters your, it shatters your um, energetic thing and you fall to the ground, okay? So if you, have, say you get stabbed or shot or something like that, or you're in a car accident, uh, Probably what happens is that in an instant, the whole process um, rapidly um, happens, you know. So what my teachers have said is that um, in the last moment, if it's instantaneous, the same process occurs, but it just occurs very rapidly. Okay. That makes sense. It's kind of what I would have thought, but, you know, we're talking about... You know, sometimes I suppose nothing is ever instant, instant. I mean, like, you know, there's always some time, you know, even if that time was two seconds. Um, yeah. So I think there's an, there's an, that time where things do wind down. Uh, two seconds might be a bit short, but yeah, whatever that is. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's go into um, the afterlife process then. Uh, tell us your thoughts around that. So uh, the, process of dying doesn't stop when the last breath is taken. Okay. What we think about is that there's an inner respiration where the inner states uh, start dissolving. Um, again, I think it may not be worth describing the process in detail at the moment. But so let's go straight on to the NDE um, research and describe what happens according to that process, okay? Um, let's see. So I said before, there's a, you know, the body fights to stay alive. Um, let me just say something before we go into that. Every tradition, culture, individual, you know, every tradition and culture has reported this. In the West, we have had some scientific research of the whole thing. So um, that's what makes things a little bit more interesting and probably palatable for our um, type of society. Um, so each, each person's experience is also um, different, okay? But there's a struggle of dying and then there's a climactic event or where you can't carry on in surrender. And suddenly you get into a space where the pain is gone and things become very calm. Um, some people leave their body and they have out-of-body experiences. So they lurk around the hospital and see relatives in different rooms. They see the resuscitation teams and so on. Um, other people travel through a tunnel of light and meet a being of light and have a life review. Okay. Um, 
usually after the life review, they go into a pleasant space where they meet dead, dead relatives or they meet um, other people that have um, died recently. Sometimes they meet people that they didn't even know were dead. Okay? Um, and they come back and report on this kind of thing. Uh, and then they come to a point of no return where they have to decide uh, whether they are going to come back or not. And some people may choose at that point that they want to come back because they've got children or they've got a wife or they've got a mother that they, they can't leave alone. Sometimes they send back with tasks. And sometimes the relatives or ancestors will say, um, hey, it's not your time yet. And then they're back in the body. Okay. So that's what um, is has been documented very wonderfully by um, some really excellent researchers um, that in brief is the after-death experience or yeah. the near-death experience. Okay. So it's almost like a choice though. I mean, like that's what you're saying. It's, it's almost like in that experience, there's a choice or there could be a choice. You know, for the person to, you know, carry on the process of dying or just go back, uh, which is interesting. You know, for um, for most of the people that come back with reports um, are people that um, obviously survived, so they did come back for some reason. Um, so one can't say about the people that went on on through the door or through the gate, um, but the people that come back say yes, there is a choice. And sometimes they don't have a choice. You know, they get kicked out. <laughs> hey, you have to go back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you mentioned research. I, I want to touch on that just now, but uh, I have this nagging question, which is. Why is it so difficult for us as a society to believe that, though? I mean, I, and it might just be my own thoughts, but whenever someone says that, you almost have this feeling of like disbelief rather than this feeling of amazement and wonder. Do you find that is the general sentiment? Yes and no. Um, you know, we live in a society where positivism science has had uh, dominion for several decades. Um, the medical model has been one of like amazing progress, has provided us with amazing progress over um, the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. I don't know how long. So um, it is a very um, compelling worldview that if you can't see it then it doesn't happen you know if you can't show me the evidence then it doesn't happen um so i think that's probably a bit of the process eh? mm, okay fair enough i think uh and i mean i think you articulated it well because and it's interesting in science even if i look at the solar system as an example no one sees that i mean we've seen images but no one knows that but scientists tell us you know that's what it is and almost everyone believes it and so it's interesting with with medical related stuff for or uh, people related stuff how we don't believe that as well uh, i suppose there's no pictures you know maybe that's the case we need to believe you know like we need to believe by seeing something um you know and you mentioned the research. Is this uh, research, as we know, research in terms of academic journals and things like that? Yes, indeed. Um, whenever I, you know, there, there, there are lots of stuff. If you go onto YouTube, there's lots of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is really cuckoo-faced. And, um, you know, don't, I don't want to say don't pay attention to it. But there's research by good doctors, neuro neuro professors and so on. I'm going to give you a couple of names, okay? Go um, and look at Dr. Mary Neal. Go and look at Peter Fennick. There's a guy in the Netherlands, Dr. Pum van Lommel. 
There's another guy in the U.S. called uh, Dr. Eben Alexander. Um, the first person that wrote about it was a guy called Dr. Raymond Moody, and I think he wrote in the 70s or 80s. Um, I remember picking up um, his book uh, maybe before my mom passed away even, so it would have been in the 70s maybe. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there's been a lot of um, scientific documentations. Okay, cool. And there are a lot of know. skeptics as well. Eh? Yeah, they yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And, and and I think that's why it's asking the question. It seems to be more we err on the side of skepticism and disbelief rather than the side of, you know, like, wow, this is like breaking through boundaries and this is breaking through barriers. Um, you know, it just seems to be that that feel to the subject um that um yeah that i have and maybe lots of people other people have can i ask um because again like you said i think you touched on it a bit every culture has their own way of dying you know like from the aztecs you know like centuries ago to you know the egyptians you know like their their process was very documented with the the tombs of the pharaohs and all of that stuff and have you found any similarities in terms of how culture or religion plays a role in this? Um, I haven't done much of a cross-cultural reading, okay? But I believe that each person is met according to what is valuable to them. Um, I think heaven meets you um, or your soul meets you in a way that you were put together. So Christians will probably see Christian imagery and Buddhists will see Buddhist imagery and so on. Um, and traditional people will see traditional things um, or traditionally meaningful things. And that's the thought I have, um, um, Oliver. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure the information is out there if you, if you go and look for it, you know. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously, um, I grew up in a community where they were very, you know, it was multicultural, multi-faith. And so you always got to witness, you know, the, the different, you know, ways in which funerals are done and, and stuff like that, which is always interesting. You know, the Hindus have their own way of last rites, the, you know, the, the Muslims, the Christians do, um, and stuff like that, which is, yeah, it's interesting to see how that works because lots of people, I mean, that's, you know, we were talking about the last things that people do and expect from, you know, from a person that's that's dying. And uh, I think it kind of, kind of comes to that. The food is a big thing. I think growing up, you know, people would always think, and it's interesting that you mentioned because uh, Tania did the same thing. She said, you know, in those last moments or those, you know, towards the end of your life, you don't want to eat anything. And I didn't think of it as much until she said it and you said it now as well. But always like in my mind and, you know, from my experience, people always say, you know, someone wants to eat something really great. You know, if they loved, I don't know, Nando's, you know, like in the last moments, they want to eat like Nando's for the last time. Makes me think of those American movies about people on death row, um, you know, where you offered your last meal. Your Yes, mm. in a certain budget, probably. But <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know many people that um, that have specific uh, demands for food at the end of death, at the end of life. Eh? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know. Agreed. Um, again, growing up, you know, like in funerals, you would always hear, you know, people talking about. Uh, you know, the person wanting to eat a certain meal, you know, towards the end of their life, you know, like whether there was conscious from the person that passed away, or it was just something that they think about. Uh, but it's something to connect you, you know, because food is such obviously, such, such a integral part of us as human beings, that I think it's a it's something that people talk about. It's just my personal experience. I, don't I think that's so. If one is desperate for your relative to eat, you probably try to make something that they are most likely to eat, you know. So um, I don't know. I don't mm. know, Oliver. 
Okay, cool. Now, more interesting. But um, coming back to to treatment and and that stuff, is there a typical treatment plan that you have with patients and maybe family members in terms of how you work with them? Uh, it varies incredibly depending on what is um, what is going. Okay, um, you. What I find that when you work with dying people specifically, the most important thing is that you are so completely present just to what, what they are presenting and what, and just being with them. Um, if, for example, somebody's, you know, wanting to talk about their life, just let them talk. If people have questions like, um, you know, Will I ever be forgiven for things I've done? Um, one can help them maybe with compassion-focused uh, processes, um, like um, you know, maybe offer your sacrifice, sacrifice or offer your suffering at the moment for the benefit of that person. Um, you know. Um, you may not see the uh, the effects in this life, and I think one of the most painful kinds of dying is when people feel that they're suffering and it's meaningless. And um, you know, if you can help them transform that into something that gives them meaning, um, it seems to be very valuable and um, make possible a, a good death or peaceful death. Mm. Um, otherwise, you deal with things symptomatically. You know, if the family has issues, um, sometimes they have physical issues, sometimes they legal issues, um, and sometimes you just need to alert people to what is likely to come up. You know, are there children involved? Are there orphans at the end of it? Is there a funeral policy? Um, you know, things, uh, it's, it's totally symptomatic that you address matters. Um, sometimes you have to help people to, um, to formulate a list of things to ask the doctors. Um, like my wife is lying in a coma, you know, are we doing palliative care at the moment or are we trying to get her better? And that sort of thing. Is she ever going to come home? Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Mm -mm, I do. I actually didn't have a term for it until uh, the episode with Tania, because apparently it's called an advanced care plan or a care plan. And this is something that, you know, it's like writing a will. Uh, it's like everyone should have a care plan, as in how would you like those last moments to be? But the, what you just said now, you know, should you switch off the machine or should you let the machine carry on going? You know, but people don't think about that right until the last bit. And then, you know, I think the loved ones are, you know, are making that decision. And in her words, sometimes it's not the wishes of the patient. You know, the patient actually wants, you know, just to switch off the machine. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Have you come across that term before? The care plan? Yes, I have. Um, and you know what? The hospice website, there's, uh, uh, what do they call it? HCPA, gosh, I can't remember. I'll, I'll write these things down for you and, and email it to you. Please. Um, but there's a hospice website, and on the web, hospice website, there are tools to help people um, work out a care plan for themselves. Um, now, you know, in the cities, there are hospices, but here in the Bundus, um, <laughs> things happen completely differently, you know? The, the local hospice um, sort of um, doesn't have much capacity. So, um, and I think that's, that's for much of the country. Here. So there are a couple of really nice hospices around that can help with a lot of wonderful treatment, but most of the place is un, unserviced. Mm. Okay, cool. And uh, are you saying that more from a resource point of view, they could help you draft maybe that care plan or or stuff like that? Uh, 
but I think when you send the resources, we'll definitely link up to that. Um, but yeah, with the hospice, would they actually draft the plan for you or would they just guide you? You know, there's a tool. You basically type in a lot of stuff and I, I haven't explored it myself, but I know that it's there. I've sort of looked at the first page and so on, uh, where you are, I think you are guided through a series of um, questions to help formulate a care plan uh, for yourself. Okay, that's great. Um, and Steve, within how you work with clients or, or patients, do you do you find yourself working in a multidisciplinary kind of team? I'm assuming a doctor is in that mix somewhere, because a doctor is normally, you know, there towards the end of someone just checking on them and things like that. But do you find you're working with any other practitioners? You know what, I wish I could work in a in a a multidisciplinary team but unfortunately I don't have it's not in place so you may make a telephone call to the doctor if the if the um, uh, uh, the client or the very often when there's this dying person we refer to the whole family as the patient um, when the patient requires you to do that okay uh, but um, most of the time you help the patient to clarify things with a doctor um and very rarely do you sort of step in yourself to to help communicate things to the patient okay yeah i see that as a and and i mean obviously with this topic you're saying it a little bit more that it's probably a gap, but I find in most, you know, with most of the practitioners that I've spoken to, unless you're working in a hospital type setting where, where the MDT team is is almost inherent in how they work, I think most mm -hmm. of the you know practitioners that work in a private practice or independent practice kind of uh, setting, it's difficult to create that space for like a multidisciplinary setup. So I think it's one of our goals this year is how do we, you know, create that space uh, as a company or a team, but yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That would be lovely, hey. That would be really lovely. Um, yeah, and it's also um, you know just by geography. I think much of the inner parts of the country, or the non-city, the rural parts of the country, are probably experiencing the same kind of thing. Hey? Mm. So, mm. Yeah, yeah. I think with COVID and. Um, Actually, that's a good question. I'll ask you about that now, because the thing that, especially with this topic, it's it's really prevalent. Oh well, it's in, it's really important. But with COVID and Zoom and you know move into online over the last few years, it's definitely made the world smaller from that perspective. You know, for us to have this conversation, you know, from the UK to Bethlehem, is like like amazing. You know, incredible in terms of an experience. Um, yeah. But um, I had the COVID question, like, have you found, I mean, I would love to get your sense of what that process was working with patients. And have you found any, anything of, of, of interest to mention around, you know, death and afterlife experience uh, around COVID and around the COVID time? You know what? I closed my practice during COVID. I used to have only a face-to-face -face practice. So after about a year of COVID, I realized that one could use Zoom. Unfortunately, <laughs> when uh, they announced the lockdown, I, I basically closed my practice for about nine months. Wow. Um, and then I um, you know, uh, reopened after, after that period. Um, so afterwards, I dealt with a lot of people that experienced uh, loss and grief. Um, but at the time, you know, sorry, afterwards, uh, even during the last sort of stages of lockdown, but um, the first nine months, I didn't deal with anything at all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the one theme I'm finding coming out of, um, you know, the you know, the topic of death and COVID and is the whole disenfranchised grief, you know, which is, 
you know, like people don't grieve in the same way or they weren't allowed to grieve in the same way. And there's definitely repercussions, you know, from a psychological perspective around that. And uh, so that seems to be a, you know, a big thing that seems to be coming up over the last few years. We had Beanie Otto on the show. I mean, she's a counseling psychologist and she was talking about specifically around that. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a good topic. And uh, something I wouldn't have thought of. I mean, I, I remember we spoke about the religious part, but you know, there's lots of, you know, like, like Hindus as an example, you know, the last rites are absolutely critical, you know, to move over into the afterlife kind of thing. And during that COVID time, you couldn't do those last rites. And, uh, you know, that was like a, like a really big thing for communities. And, and obviously practitioners had to, you know, work with people, you know, to, for acceptance and stuff like that which I thought was you know, kind of a fascinating topic. Um, yeah. So, and uh, Steve, you mentioned the research papers, obviously that gives us the credibility part, but with the, with your patients and, and people that you speak to, is there any other resources that you point them to? If they ever say, you know, like, a, you know, I really love this and, or well, not, maybe not love this, but I would love to learn more about it. Um, is there anything that you recommend? Do you, do you normally send them to a certain or certain websites or books or anything like that? Um, if people want to know more about NDEs, I usually send them to you, to you, okay? But to the doctors um, dealing with this stuff. If people want to know more about grief and bereavement, um, there's a wonderful lady called Anelia Drent or Drenth. Um, I think she she's a doctor. She may have been professor even um, some time ago. She does a lot of work around bereavement, and she has an online course around bereavement, um, both for people that are suffering bereavement and that um, you know, and and practitioners and so on. Um, she has workshops from time to time. Oops. Um, lovely person and um, excellent practitioner. Um, and uh, you know, if if um, I I don't only deal with people in Bethlehem, so if people are in other places and there's hospice available, I refer them to hospice. Hey, um, if okay. they haven't been referred yet. So anyone. Sorry, sometimes people don't think of hospice. Um, for some reason, it is not, it doesn't register that, you know, we, there actually are resources to help at this time with pain control, with information, with support. People often don't think about it, um, even in places like Cape Town and so on. Uh, so sometimes they need a bit of a prompt to, to, uh, to go there. Can, can you just, I mean, for anyone that doesn't know about it as well, can you explain what the hospice is? Obviously, this is in a South African context, but I think, uh, I mean, I think every country has their own version, but especially, specifically in South Africa, what is the hospice? Hospice is a place that provides palliative care. Um, and um, it provides psycho-spiritual and medical um, support for the patient and the family. And it's a brilliant organization. Brilliant, really. Um, yeah. And, and is it quite affordable? I mean, in your experience, I mean, does it work on the same principle as like medical aid or health insurance? Or is it more like private stuff? You know what? I don't know the details at the moment. I have a feeling that at some point medical aid clients were feeling that they were being excluded from hospice. And I don't know if that's because doctors tend to keep on treating them. Um, and I don't know if that's for financial reasons or, um, uh, sorry, I'm probably casting aspersions uh, that I shouldn't be. Um, but I think I, I, I don't know. I think it's just worth exploring. Hey, okay. I don't think people get. I don't think people get turned away. Mm -hmm. Hospice isn't just uh, 
going in 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 um, in the house. There's support outside for people in families and so on. So, you know, there are different um, different kinds of support. Okay, cool. Good to know. I mean, uh, again, I, I don't have much experience with it. I, I know the term, but I, I just didn't even know what they did, to be honest. But thanks so much for just... And again, I mean, it's just planting a seed. You know, if anyone listening, you know, obviously just Google hospice and should be really, really easy to see all of the information on their website. Um, my second last question, and then we can start wrapping up soon. But is there any, rec- I wouldn't say recommendations, but is there anything that you would say to a loved one that's dealing with a person going through the process of dying? Um, is there anything that comes up, you know, from your, obviously lots of experience, you know, working with many patients around this? Um, is there anything that you would say to them? I would say that, you know, it's probably something that um, could be one of the hardest things that you ever go through. It's probably something you've anticipated with a great lot of anxiety and fear. And if you had somebody that was ill for a while, you've probably started grieving uh, long before the person actually passes. Um, There are ways to make the whole process a whole lot simpler and easier, and there is support for you as you go ahead. You know, if you are informed, you can do everything, or you can do many, many things to um, care for the person to make their death as um, easy as possible, medically, psychologically. Um, and there's support for, you know, let's see what support you need. Um, and yeah, there's 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 enough information to guide people through the whole process from um, the point of uh, the point the diagnosis is um, is made or disclosed, you know, right through to um, the time when the body is collected um, or um, interred um, or cremated or whatever the process needs to be. Okay, cool. Um, I like that. I think you said some key things, which is, you know, there is support available. You know, you don't have to kind of be alone with it. And just knowing that they, you know, there are people like yourself around that can help with the process, I think. Uh, because it's always like, that's why I was, I was very intrigued about that care plan. Because you always think it's it's something that you can kind of put off all the way until the end. And that's why we started the episode by talking about the certainty of it. But I think there's, I mean, this is, when I spoke to Beanie as well, uh, I said the same thing. So I think there's definitely a space for people being a lot more proactive with this topic because it will come. It's not, it's not like it's a never, ever going to be a scenario. It's just never, ever going to be a scenario. Yeah, yeah, it will be a scenario at some stage. So it's worth talking about it knowing what resources you have, you know, thinking about it and just, even if it's not doing it today, you know, just thinking about it and doing it at some stage. Um, but yeah, my last question, Steve, is obviously we, you know, like when we, we we met, we talked about the topic and we put the brief together. We try our best to kind of research what's out there and, and see what people might be asking. But is there anything that you thought I should have asked you around the process of dying or the after after death experience um, that I didn't? There's one important thing I think we should that I should maybe say is that once the person has drawn their last breath, um, try to leave the body in peace for a couple of hours if it's possible and try to keep the drama sorry if it's wrong word try to yeah try to just you know um, try to leave as much peace around the body as possible for as long as possible at least for a um, a few hours if it's possible 
Um, sometimes in hospitals, it's not possible, you know, you could have um, the body being cleaned up and cleared away um, very quickly. But death is very important. It's very important for us going through it. It's very important in ways that are not immediately obvious, um, but we need to take care of that time as well. Okay. I would have never thought that. Uh, but I think when you say that and with, you know, with the backdrop of this conversation that we've had, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the first thing, exactly what you just said now, the first thing we do is we try to get to that, you know, it's a human behavior thing. We just want to get to the next step. So we get to the next step of someone trying, you know, coming through and taking um, that person away. Okay. Yeah, funeral. I'm thinking funeral services or ambulance or whatever that is. Um, cool. I love this conversation. I love your work. Um, although it's very difficult, and that's why I said at the beginning of the show, you know, very brave, you know, around the topic. Uh, but I really loved everything that you said. Thanks so much for doing this, Oliver. Thank you so much for for allowing me to speak about the topic because I don't often have the opportunity to speak to people. Uh, so it's like a real privilege to actually have somebody ask me questions about it. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure. I mean, from the first time I met you, I thought that's an interesting topic. And I think that's how, uh, you know, that's that's what we're doing at the moment is, is some of the topics are a little bit edgy as well. Uh, you know, we've had some really good conversations over the last few episodes. But I think it's necessary conversations, you know, to get us better as a society. And whether this, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, whether you you think it's morbid or not, it will happen. And I think if we can connect to amazing people like yourself, Steve, I think it is going to be better, you know, from a community, from a society perspective. Thanks so much, Oliver. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.